Hey, folks, I know there are lots of business owners who listen to this show. Maybe some of you never planned on running a business, but now here you are. One thing you've always got to keep in mind is how much you're spending on your operating costs. That's one of the first things we had to keep in mind with WTF. And with things costing more today than they did when we started, you want to keep your expenses down. To reduce costs and headaches, be smart and use NetSuite by Oracle, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform and one source of truth. Reduce IT costs, cut the costs of maintaining multiple systems, improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash WTF for more. That's netsuite, N-E-T-S-U-I-T-E dot com slash WTF. All right, let's do this. How are you? What the fuckers? What the fuck buddies? What the fucksters? What's happening? I'm Mark Marin. Mark? Did I just say Mark Marin? You know, I shouldn't be mispronouncing my own name, but I guess I'm Mark Marin today. And this is my podcast, WTF. How you doing, Mark? Pretty good. Mark? There you go. What's Mark up to? I guess he's doing a show without you. Without who? Without Mark. So this is Mark? Yup. I want to say today on the show, sort of a, a unique show for us. I think it is. I guess in a way, maybe not. I can talk to anybody, but Rick Baker is the makeup artist genius. He's the makeup artist that all the other makeup artists look up to. He's done all of the stuff. He worked on The Exorcist a bit. He did this amazing thing. I remember when I was a kid, the autobiography of Miss Jane Pittman. He did some work on Star Wars. He did The Howling. He did Videodrome with Cronenberg. He did like two or three King Kongs. I think he did I think he did Dino De Laurentiis's King Kong and then he did Peter Jackson's King Kong and then he did he did Joe uh, the other one. What's that one called? Mighty Joe, Mighty Joe Kong, Mighty Joe Young. He did a lot of apes. There's a lot of apes involved in, in makeup. He did uh, he did How the Grinch Stole Christmas, the Nutty Professor's movies, he, Men in Black stuff. The guy is the guy. He's a fucking genius, and he's got this amazing, huge two-book set out that covers his entire life in pictures and in, and in prose, and it's just phenomenal. And I'm not like, you know me, I'm not a fantasy guy, but I've seen most of those movies. So it's kind of an interesting opportunity, and I'm glad I took it. So you will hear me talking to Rick Baker in a few. So a couple of emails I'd like to address, perhaps, can I? This is uh, the subject line, episode 1063, chocolate-covered coconut cookie snacks. Uh, Hi there, I was just listening to Mark's opening monologue of episode 1063 when he mentioned the vegan snacks for Woody Harrelson that Frank had left behind, uh, the, quote, chocolate-covered coconut cookie snacks, unquote. As you can probably tell from my email address, I work for Emmy's Organics, an organic coconut cookie and treat company based in Ithaca, New York. I was hoping you could tell me if the snacks Mark mentioned in this episode were, in fact, Emmy's products pictured below. And if so, if he liked them, would he like us to send some more for Mark to enjoy and share with his podcast guests? Now, right out of the gate, like, is there a lot of competing chocolate-covered coconut cookie things? That seems like four words... You know, the only word that wasn't right on the money was snack. 
right? So I'm glad that you thought that like there was a question. It's like, I don't know if he's talking about our bites or not. I mean, we make the chocolate-covered coconut cookie bites, but he might have gotten our competitors, the makers of the chocolate-covered coconut cookie snack. Those fuckers. It was indeed Emmy's chocolate-covered coconut cookie bites, not snacks, but they are snacks. But you got it right. And uh, this isn't even a paid plug. I don't think I should have any more. As good as they were, I appreciate your offer, but I don't want them in my house. Is that is that mean? Very good. I love them. I love them. Don't want them in the house. That's how that goes. Um, and I think I think it's also important that I, I just say this at least once a show. Uh, President Donald Trump is a scumbag. He's a fucking morally bankrupt douchebag. He's a weak piece of shit. And it's like, is that just name calling? Yes, it is. But I've I've grown to believe that that I did not just make a political statement. I think it's time to reframe the conversation. Here's what it is. That wasn't political. That was observational. That was a regular person. Hey, let's make an observation about this guy. Doesn't matter even what he's doing. Like, let's say, hey, that guy's name is Don and he's selling cars. That guy's a fucking scumbag. He's a morally bankrupt, fucking corrupt douche. Don, you're just having that first reaction to him? Yeah, I don't even know that guy. So that is the regular reaction. So that's observational, not political. Just happens to be the president. Anybody who's saying like he's doing the right thing and he's a good guy and we really love him, that's delusional. See, there's a difference between neither are political. One is observational. The other one is fucking nuts. Like nuts. I'm not talking about the upper tier. They have their own reasons for doing things because they don't live in the world with the rest of us. I'm just talking about us. There's observational comedy and delusional defensive reactions to that. Here's another email. Hey, Mark, uh, subject line, Kid Haver's response. I appreciate you apologizing for hurting some people's feelings when calling people kid havers, but you are literally the only prominent voice in my life that doesn't make me feel bad for not having kids. Actually makes me feel good about it. Every commercial, every political speech, every job pitch is always think about your kids. Well, I don't have any, and I'm still a person that wants to matter. I just want to say thank you for being a voice for the children. Thanks. I I appreciate you calling me out on that, being considerate to people that made the horrendous mistake to bring children into the world. And uh, maybe that didn't come out right. I, you're right. I, I shouldn't apologize for who I am. And I was just trying to be polite. And, you know, good luck with your kids. Um, and, and you and me, uh, Carlos, the guy who wrote the email, you know, we're, it's pretty comfortable, isn't it? It's nice. Are you feeling pretty free today? Like you worried about your kid? No, you're not. Is the kid, oh, you don't have one. What about the future? I don't know. I'm probably going to be dead. You too, Carlos? Yep. Wow. Ah, breathe easy. But anyways, I hope everyone's kids are okay. And uh, and I'm sorry I don't want to be grim, but but I think Carlos is right. I don't need to apologize for him, but I was just trying to be respectful. Before I get too wrapped up in whatever it is I'm going on about, uh, Nick Toshis is dead. Nick Toshis, the writer, a former guest on this show. I talked to Nick in 2015. It was very important to me to track him down and talk to him. Uh, we did it at a hotel in New York. He sort of was a difficult guy to find. He was a bit 
uh, erratic, a bit drunk at times, a very unique, a very uh, dark type of guy, but a very uh, cynical, but uh, cutting and smart dude. And some of his books are some of the best books I ever read. Uh, among them, Dino, Living High in the Business of Dreams about Dean Martin. I love that book. Hellfire, an earlier book about uh, Jerry Lee Lewis, which I, I loved a lot. He, uh, he did a, a book called The Unsung Heroes of Rock and Roll, which was a, a real education uh, for me. The Devil and Sonny Liston, which was a great book uh, about Sonny Liston. Toshis was, was great. He, he lived hard. And, uh, and and now he's gone. I think he was like uh, 69 years old. And Dino is, you know, whether it's accurate or not, is one of the best books about show business I've, uh, I've ever read. Rest in peace there, Nick Toshis, if that's possible. Uh, I imagine he's going to be difficult wherever he goes. Um, so, great time in Nashville and uh, Atlanta. I, I've been watching Ken Burns's country music and what an amazing treat it is. And I was in Nashville and a lot of that stuff was happened in Nashville. I, you know, I like the day after I leave Nashville, um, watching, I think I'm up to the fourth episode. They're like two hours a piece. But then I was actually, I was walking through a part of Nashville called, uh, I think music row or whatever. And I didn't really know what it was. It didn't look like much. And this morning way too late, I learned what it was and why it was called that. But nonetheless, uh, I've been watching it and things sort of s- were syncing up. I do know a little, you guys listen to me bullshit my way through knowing things here all the time. But I know a bit about rock. I know a bit about blues. I know a bit about jazz. I mean, I can sort of track it, you know, historically, both uh, all three of those things, really. I don't know a lot of the jazz performers, but I have a sense of the history. I had zero sense of the history of country music. And I have a lot of the records. I I didn't grow up with country music. It was around me. I grew up in New Mexico. I remember the state fair, the rodeo, you know, the acts coming through, Waylon, Willie, Roy Clark, Buck Owens, uh, you know, uh, uh, who else do I remember from when I was a kid? Freddie Fender, Freddie Fender. Wasted days and wasted nights. Come on, huh? I'll be there. Before the next teardrop falls. I think he might have lived in Albuquerque. He seemed to be there all the time. But none the, I, it wasn't in my household so much as it was around me, but I'd grown to love country music. I just didn't know anything about it. And the Ken Burns doc is just blowing my fucking mind. You know, when they, the way he frames things, he gives you context. And I was listening to, I meditated all day on, I think, Saturday. The day I got to uh, Atlanta after being in Nashville, I listened to the Carter family all day long. I was mystified. And I never knew, I, I knew who Jimmy Rogers was and I had the cover record, but I didn't know how important he was. I didn't know that it was all about Jimmy Rogers and the Carter family. That is the Rosetta Stone of modern country. But you go back to their influences and there's definitely some, you know, blues in there and there's some, uh, you know, other stuff, but that was sort of, they were the template according to Burns and according to people he talked to. But to me, that's just fucking fascinating. And now I got a place to start and kind of arc out and I've got the records. I guess the whole point of me talking to you right now is to just give a plug to Ken Burns's country music uh, documentary and also to tell you, I have a lot of records. I just want you to know I have a lot of records and many of them are country records. But here's what I learned in Nashville. I had a big, uh, I had a learning moment. I want to share it with you. Um, 
and I always love going to Nashville. But I learned something about myself there, and I want to and I want to share it with you. And I think I'm going to stick to this. Okay, I'm I'm old, right? I'm 56 years old, and I know that's not old, old. And I know that other people in their 50s get really defensive when you say that you're old and you're 50 something. But I, I, folks, I didn't assume I would live this long. Okay, and and now here I am. All right, it's great, but sometimes I, I don't always know what to do with with life. Like you know, what makes it fun? worthwhile, exciting, huh? What? I mean, historically for me, it seems to be doing things that aren't great for me, but feel really good. And I've had to move away from those things, all right? Change them up a bit, okay? I have my moments where I think, and I think many of you can relate to this, we all have these moments where I'm just like, fuck it, fuck it. You only live once, man. Fuck it, I'm doing it. And I decided... I decided, and it was in Nashville, you know, right on time actually, that it's not necessarily a bad philosophy if you manage it. Like I, I decided that I could only apply it to one decision a day, max, if at all. Uh, you don't have to. Every day doesn't have to have a fuck it. You only live once in it because then you're probably not going to live long. So, is what I did. I was in Nashville, and I said, "Fuck it." I only live once and I ate at Arnold's Country Kitchen, all right? That's it's Arnold's, it's a meet and three and I've been wanting to go there for years but for some reason they're closed on weekends and they're only open for lunch and it was just never open. And they always seemed closed when I was there. And I was dying for some chess pie, which you can only get down south and not too many places there have it either. But it's it's specific and and they have it at Arnold's, all right? So I went to Arnold's. I said, fuck it, I'm going, because you know I'm a pretty healthy guy. And I had a plate of fried catfish, cauliflower casserole, corn pudding, turnip greens, cornbread, and a slice of chest pie. They actually had meringue on it. There were options. I had you could go meringue or no meringue. I went with meringue. I don't care. Fuck it. I only live once. Now, I'm glad that was where I allotted my one daily use of that philosophy because right after I ate at Arnold's, I walked like across the parking lot. It's right there to Carter's Vintage Guitars, okay? And for some reason, Carter's was where the estate of Ed King, I think his wife, Ed King being the original guitar player, one of the original guitar players of Leonard Skinner, the guy who wrote Sweet Home Alabama, uh, the guy whose signature picks I use, his wife was selling his guitar collection through Carter's Vintage Guitars. And I found out later that Jason Isbell had bought one, but that's another story. So I'm in there and I'm looking at guitars and I'm looking at Ed King's mint 1953 Les Paul Deluxe gold top. It was fucking stunning, okay? I didn't need it, but I didn't need the Arnold's either. Okay, my point is, I said fuck it at the right place because the difference between me saying fuck it, I only live once at Arnold's and not at Carter's was about $39,980. All right. Thank God I stuck to my allotment. Now, I'm not saying that I have that kind of money to spend on a guitar, but but fuck it, man. I could have. I could have. You know, I don't know if I would have felt good about it. Chess pie was amazing. I don't know if I'd be sitting here with my 53 gold top after spending $40,000 on it because I said, fuck it, that I would be like, yeah, man, I'm so glad I bought that guitar. I'd, I'd probably be like, what the fuck is wrong with me? Maybe I'm wrong though. But I think that was, that was a smart use of my, uh, 
my new fuck it limit. All right, my fuck it, you only live once limit. I don't feel great about the chess pie, but again, I think I I feel better about it than how I would feel if I would have spent forty thousand dollars on a guitar. So. I'll be at the Masonic in San Francisco, October 26th. That's this Saturday. It's the last show of my tour before I do my special. Uh, come out to that. I'll have 100 posters, and I prefer cash. But uh, Rick Baker, this was sort of an interesting thing for me because I learned a lot, I, and I met a genius. I met a guy that you, you know did something in a way no one else had done before him, set standards, created ways of doing things in, in makeup, that uh, that still stick now, changed an industry, won like seven, I think, or maybe eight Oscars. Uh, and it was a, it was an honor, actually. I, I, you know, like I said, I'm not a fantasy guy, but this is a skill set. Uh, it's a it's a, a an often celebrated or at least talked about job in entertainment. But, you know, he talks about the struggles of getting accepted even as a makeup artist for doing what he was doing. It was just a it was a unique conversation to have here. And I'm glad I had it. This was uh, me and Rick Baker. And his book, which is amazing, uh, Rick Baker Metamorphosis, is available wherever you get books. It's going to be out tomorrow, October 22nd. Pre-order it uh, now. It's huge. It's two huge books, but stunning photographs and beautifully written. And uh, this is me talking to uh, the genius, the, the makeup artist genius that is Rick Baker. Sometimes I wish I paid more attention in school or in some cases, any attention at all. There are probably a lot of things I could have gotten more out of, like literature. And now it's probably not in the cards to go back to school and study the classics. But luckily for us, there's a new podcast called The Foxed Page that dives deep into the best books of all time. This is basically like the best possible college English class, but more relaxed and fun. No pressure of grades or needing to prepare something something to say in class. It's only the books you want to read and know about presented by best-selling author Kimberly Ford. Everything from Cormac McCarthy to Madame Bovary, from classics like Frankenstein to modern hits like Lessons in Chemistry. I love Ireland, but I missed the boat on James Joyce. The Fox Page has a three-part series on Dubliners, and that's a pretty great starting point. Want to get the most out of what you read? The Fox Page is for you. Get it now wherever you get your podcast. So, you know, I it was funny. I'm looking at the book. Massive. It's a massive book. And Metamorphosis. It's got your entire, the arc of your entire life in pictures. Uh-huh. And we were talking in the kitchen before. You, it, it's odd to you to look at that thing? Well, it is weird. It's kind of like your life passing before your eyes, you know? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but and, you had all the stuff. You know, I I save stuff. Uh, yeah. You know, I think creative people do that. You yeah. know, it's like uh, my wife's always on my case because I, you know, save old yogurt containers. Well, that's a little nuts. Well, because I use them to mix paint. Oh, you know, I like right, reuse right. it. It's like right. re- recycling. You know, right. But I mean, it, you know, it's like that looks like I could use that someday. You know, so I have boxes full of stuff that I've had for fifty years that I never use again. Right, know? but pictures though too, right? Yeah. And all that stuff. Yeah, no. So that came in really handy. Yeah. Like, that. what is some of the? What are the? Because uh, there are pictures of some pretty early stuff that you worked on. When did, you know, when did that start? When did you start making masks? Well, I started doing makeup when I was 10. I decided that's what I wanted to do with my life. How, do, how does that... Now, let's go... Where did you grow up? <laughs> Covina, which is like east of here. Uh, you grew up in Covina? You, yeah. I was born in New York, in, yeah. in Binghamton, but right. my, 
My parents left when I was not even one. So you're out in Covina, you're 10. Yeah. And what do you see that, that plants that seed? Well, like so many people of my generation, I was born in 1950. Okay. I grew up in front of a television. Right. Every weekend, you know, and I think in every state across the the Union, you know, there was yeah. a, a monster movie on, on you know, and a, show, a horror show host on the weekend. That's right. And I love that stuff. You know who's, you know, Paul Thomas Anderson's dad was one of those guys. No way. Who was he? Goulardi. Was he? In that's Cleveland. Paul, I had no idea he was that. Yeah. yeah. That's Paul Thomas Anderson's oh, father. Oh, that's cool. That's good information. <laughs> well, you know, there's, well, you know, there's Finn Gooley now. Oh, really? Which is, there's a channel called MeTV and I watch Finn Gooley. And there, there is still a guy. Yeah, there's still a guy. And I faithfully watch it. You know, I've seen all the movies a million times, you know. Sure, but you like the guy. I just like the fact that it still exists. And, and, and you knew who Goulardi was. Uh-huh. Yeah. So you knew some of the local, the, the, the different regions, because those those stations were like, they were local. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. everyone had a local guy. But they had the same movie packages. Right, you know, the oh, theater right. theater package, you know, so sure. I mean, everybody across the United States, you know, who was like my age, who was watching that stuff, you know. And there was a magazine called Famous Monsters of Filmland. My brother used to get it. I was never the horror guy, but he got it landed with him, mm. and he 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 had those magazines, and he was sort of obsessed with it. Oh yeah, I was too. And it was you know it was a film magazine. You know, I mean it was it, it talked about all aspects of the uh, monster movies. You yeah, know, not just the directors and the actors, but Jack Pierce, who did the Frankenstein's monster yeah. makeup and and all that. And I and I went. This is what I want to do. I mean, I used to say I wanted to be a doctor. Right. My parents were very excited about yeah, that. And, at 10. Yeah, yeah. But, you know, I wanted to be Dr. Frankenstein. You know? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> right. But, but I mean, but that's interesting because somehow or another, because unlike, it's not delusional in a sense, like, you know, acting when a kid wants to be an actor, or princess or something, to, you know, it's like, I want to be a movie star. Uh, you don't know how that happens. But I mean, you look at something and because of that magazine, you're like, there's a, there's a job here. Like this, this guy does that, and I've seen a lot of these movies. So this a, it's an in, employment opportunity there. Yeah, and but more than anything, I just wanted to do it. You know, what I mean, I just like <laughs> yeah. I just wanted to make stuff. And I, I mean, I when I was ten, I didn't decide I was going to do it for a living. I was just like, I, this is what I want to do. So I started making right. myself up, and I made my first mask when I was thirteen. Of wh- who was it? Uh, it was actually uh, the very first one was uh, Frankenstein from Curse of Frankenstein, the Christopher Lee Hammer film version. Um, yeah, which. I was not the biggest fan of that makeup. Yeah. But I did it because I figured I could do it because it was kind of seems doable. Yeah, it seems kind of sloppy and loose, yeah. you know. Yeah. So, and uh, did you do it? I did, yeah. And and it just never stopped after that. But when you read the magazines, did you have did you know certain processes or did you just kind of wing it? Were you how much uh, of it was sort of your own invention? There was a little bit of information. There was a, a, the occasional article on that stuff, but fortunately yeah. my father was a very creative guy, uh, but growing up in Binghamton, New York, it was discouraged. You uh-huh. know, you don't want to stop drawing, do something you can make a living at. Sure, what did he end up doing? Well, he, he dropped out of high school to help his family. Yeah. You know, he, when he moved to California, he just had a bunch of crappy jobs. You know, oh, worked, really? Worked at Sears for a while, uh, drove a truck for a while, yeah. you know. And when, uh, but he always had, he took like a correspondence course of, you know, how to draw, you know. And even though he had a natural ability, uh-huh. and, and when I was in high school, I think it was a sophomore in high school, uh, my mom was a bank teller. Yeah. Um, she, he said, "I want to try to make a living as an artist." And there were lean times, you know. Yeah. I mean, uh, 
it's hard to make a living uh, doing the creative things, you know, sure. and especially if you're not established. You right. Know? So yeah. he would do these. Uh, he had no plan. He was just sort of like, I want to do it. Yeah. And I mean, it was the happiest I've ever seen him, uh, you know, and thank God. I mean, I, I had the most amazing parents in the world. They were very positive thinking, very supportive. Did he end up making a living as an artist? Well, I mean, I think the one year I remember them doing their tax returns and being really excited because their combined income was $6,000. And that was, you know, my mom's bank teller salary and my dad sold, you know, maybe five paintings that year. What, you know, what did he, like, uh, so your mom was a bank teller? Yeah. And then so eventually she, assistant to the manager of the bank. So she was, she had the stable job. Yeah. And, it, and what's your dad painting? Like, what? what's the style? Uh, he was a realist, uh -huh. uh, um, you know, and he would do portraits of people and, and things, but mostly, you know, the things he sold the most were people who wanted a portrait of their dog. You know, it was like... That's like that's still a thing. Yeah. Yeah, I know a guy, you know Tony Millionaire? No. He's a cartoonist, uh -huh. you know, uh, and he's done several books, but he'll he'll he, he'll hire himself out to paint your dog or your house or wait, like <laughs> they, they come over and draw your shit. Yeah. <laughs> it's still a real thing. Well, it was hard, you know, my dad would do these... Uh, parking lot art shows you know uh -huh. and it's mostly people with macrame you know did things. you go to those i did well he would he would there was one that used to be on on um uh, la cienega yeah. and melrose right the parking lot in the corner and covina you know it was it's you know 30 or 40 miles east of hollywood and yeah i didn't have a car right you know and uh i would go with him and then get out and walk to like Hollywood Boulevard from there and sure. walk around, you know. Yeah. And there was a place called Projects Unlimited that did a um, the special effects for the Outer Limits TV show, yeah. show, and I knew where they were, so I would go and dig through their trash and stuff, you know. <laughs> <laughs> did you find anything ever? I did, yeah. A couple of times I found, you know, I, I found one little block flat mold that had cool texture. Really? Do you still have it? That's the I question. I don't. You know, I had, my studio was in Glendale. Uh-huh. And it was- Your a, own place. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I'm retired now. But right. it was a uh, 60,000 square foot building. It's a right. huge, huge building. And about 30,000 of it was storage. And I had molds from when I was a kid that I saved for like 50 years. And when I finally moved out uh, um, about four or five years ago, I mean, I, I was like, what do I do with all this stuff? Yeah. You know? And, you know, some of it is like movie history, you know? And, right. And like, what do you got? You know, but- All of it. Yeah. But I, I just thought, you know, I can't- I can't store all this stuff, you know, yeah. this stuff. And, you know, it's like, some, like I said, some of it for 50 years. Yeah. And eventually we filled up 15 big roll-off dumpsters with molds. Uh, and I saved a lot still. You know? Really? <laughs> yeah. Like these are faces? Yeah, hands. faces. But, you know, we, you know, the, the process is, you know, take a cast of the person's face, you sculpt with clay, yeah. you know, you make a mold of that. Yeah. So like, for example, the Grinch, you know, Jim right. Carrey, uh, Jim Carrey's makeup, I saved that mold, you know. So, yeah. Um, but some stuff I just threw out and it was like, why did I say this for 50 years and, because, and then throw it out? You know? Because you made it. Yeah. Well, that's and it. you know, and it's like, it means something. I, I mean, it's, it's weird. Like I was, what I was going to try to find out some guy who used to be, I don't know in what capacity he was a makeup artist, but he's got a bunch of molds that I don't know if the studio was going to throw them out or what, but he sent me. Uh, David Bowie's face. I mm. think it must have been a mold from Man Who Fell to Earth, maybe, uh -huh. or The Hunger. I don't uh -huh. know, but he painted it as Ziggy. So I have it downstairs. It's very eerie. Yeah. I, I mean, now that he's passed, yeah. I've got almost like this death mask. But he seems to have a business of it. I don't know where he got them all, but it, it sounds like they throw that stuff away eventually. Yeah, they do. Or, you know, there's a lot of, I mean, a lot of them you can get online. I don't have a David Bowie. I, I have a bunch of life masks of people that I've taken and, sure. and I've traded with people and stuff like that. Oh, really? That. So it's kind of a fun world of life masks? Yeah, yeah. You know, it's, <laughs> it, but it's cool. I mean, you know, because, I mean, faces were my business, you know. Sure, and, man. And, 
and you know it, you see different things on different life masks and you have them yeah he I, he sent me a robin williams one too yeah which is kind of like heavy man yeah he just sends you dead people yeah that's all just dead people <laughs> yeah. everyone's gonna be dead soon eventually yeah <laughs> well i had my first life mask taken when i was 13 of uh, you yeah my dad my dad helped me and it was because you what you were experimenting well i wanted to make a mask you know yeah. i mean i my very first masks i made there was a model kit called the visible head uh-huh. it was like a clear plastic head that had a, i remember you could see the eyes and the brains and everything yeah yeah, yeah. and i liked i had that from my doctor days wanting yeah. to be a doctor yeah you know? sure and I sculpted my first masks on that, and but they didn't quite fit. You know, oh, so, and you use that as the base. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and then so you know, I needed a, a life mask, and actually, I had a, I think it was my seventh grade uh-huh. um, science fair project. I yeah. had to do a science fair thing, and I was like, oh, all right, I'm making a mask is kind of like science, sure. you know. So I did definitely a, science. Yeah, so I did a uh, you know how to how to make a mask science fair project. And I thought, okay, this is the time to do the life mask. There's actually pictures in the book of uh, we cut a hole in cardboard and put it so it only went this far on my face. Yeah. You know, but um, and you know, my dad put plaster on my face and straws in my nose. Yeah. Which is every actor who you ever see on TV when they talk about having a life cast, they yeah. say they had plaster on my face and straws in my nose. That's it. But we don't do that. Not anymore. No, I mean, I did that when I was 13, <laughs> and, uh, and and I realized how that you don't want to do this to somebody. You know. Yeah. I mean, pulled out my eyelashes, my eyebrows. I did, you know, we put Vaseline on my face. But yeah, it, it didn't work. It still pulled out a lot of stuff. And the straws in the nose just get in the way. I mean, we work around the nostrils. It's a lot easier that way. Oh, so in in, in big show business, no straws in the nose? No. Uh, <laughs> no. And But, you know, I'm swear, and you know, maybe you know this because, yeah. because you act and stuff, but I swear there's a book that actor, they give to actors. They yeah. say when you go on, you know, Jimmy Fallon or whatever, you say that, they put straws in my nose and plaster on my face. I don't know anybody that does that, but Isn't every that actor says that. Yeah, it's maybe weird. maybe that's what they sense. Do you not stick anything in the nose? No, no just uh, work around the nostrils. That's it. Yeah, even John Hurt, an Elephant Man. Uh, I'm sure they didn't put straws in his nose. Well, how? What's the? Well, I don't want to just jump into asking trivia questions. So, what's the, the arc of it? Because you've done the makeup in like these major movies that have defined all of our lives. Mm-hmm. Right, I mean, literally, your creations have haunted, uh, you know, enlightened. It's just—it's a very odd thing to because I'm not even a horror or sci-fi guy, but I've seen most of a lot of the movies that you've done, mm-hmm. and uh, it's just sort of mind-blowing because there's a couple of things that you've done that I think disturbed me for like long periods of my life. Good. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, so what is the arc of how do you? begin to study what you know you committed when you were 10 but what is you you know you went to regular life after that right you you went to elementary school and high school and i didn't and then that was it did you get into film after that uh you know i do you have funny. siblings i i no, i'm an only child my mother had a bad heart and and they said uh, to her that she really shouldn't have children and i mean that's why i always felt loved and wanted because yeah. they because they, they said to her you know you could die or 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 something bad can happen to the kid, or yeah. stuff. And I didn't realize until I got older and started to talk to people yeah. how not everybody has great parents, you know. And that's true. And I had very loving and very supportive, positive thinking parents. And and you know they, so when I said I didn't want to be a doctor anymore, I wanted to make monsters. Yeah. You know, instead of sending me to my room without my dinner, you know, 
they said you can do anything that you set your mind to. Well, if you got one kid, you don't want them hating you for the rest of the time. <laughs> yeah, I suppose so. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you want to make that kid as happy as possible. Everybody's happy. Yeah. And, you know, the good thing was, again, because the creativity was discouraged in my father's lifetime, he encouraged it in mine. So I benefited from that. Well, know? what do you think about that, about only childness? Because, like, I know Robin Williams was also an only child, and he sort of w- was kind of fond of... Uh, you know, soldier action figures, soldiers, like, you know, creating worlds. Mm-hmm. Do you think that some of that w- was based on a kind of loneliness? Yeah. I mean, I uh, also was painfully shy as a kid. Mm. Uh, I mean, I could not speak to an adult. You know, I basically stayed in my bedroom and sure. made stuff. My bedroom was my workshop. Yeah. Um, and that, again, was something that fascinated me about makeup. The first time I just even smeared grease paint on my face. Yeah. Uh, you know, I put white grease paint on my face and black around my eyes. And then when the face in the mirror wasn't me anymore and it was freeing, I could do things that I couldn't do as little Ricky Baker. Yeah. And (laughs) it showed me the power of makeup as well. You know, you know that you could, when you, it's a really strange thing to look out of your eyes and just see a different face looking back at you. you Yeah. I, I I imagine some people experience that every day (laughs) for the wrong reasons. (laughs) Who am I? What am I doing? I I notice it as I get older, like it's weird that when there's a consistency to looking at yourself, which you do every day, Hmm. you don't really see it until one day you're like, when did that happen? Yeah. Oh, and I know it's (laughs) look in the mirror and there's this old man looking back at me and where did he come from? You know, is this a makeup? Yeah. (laughs) So how, what is, the how do you get started in show business well it's hard yeah uh, i again in covina isn't it isn't like living here in the valley you know no. there's no film people out there you of know of course not and um but by the it sounds like by the time you 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 know at least what you went to high school right i did and did you do theater in high school did I, you provide I did, a, I did a drama class and i did makeups for plays and stuff like you that. did did yeah. you did you do anything spectacular that... Not so spectacular. I mean, there wasn't the time or the money or anything. I mean, I think the biggest thing I did, we did Camelot. Uh-huh. And I did, you know, made some beards and, you know, did a Merlin and, okay. and, you know, things yeah, like yeah. that, you know. Um, but yeah, no, and we did an arsenic and old lace, so I got to do kind of a Frankenstein-like... Uh, right, but you, but you knew all these classic monsters. You knew, like, Karloff's Frankenstein and Cheney's Wolfman and, like, right? Oh, yeah, and I love that stuff. And the, uh, the classic... Cheney Sr. one with the sharp teeth and the top hat. What London, was a- London After Midnight, yeah, lost yeah. film. Yeah, one of my favorite makeups. Cheney's original, I mean, The Phantom of the Opera. Yeah. London After Midnight. I mean, all of Cheney's stuff is is brilliant. Wasn't there, there was some, uh, it was in a book how he went about doing his stuff, there, right? Yeah, there's uh, Cecil Holland, who was an old makeup artist yeah. around, around, and I think he Cecil actually helped Cheney. Um, Cheney did his own makeups, but I believe, you know, when you, that type of makeup, especially, you know, with putty and stuff. Yeah doesn't last and needs constant touch-up. And uh-huh. as an actor, you know, acting, he was concentrating on his performance. So right. I'm sure, you know, he probably put it on, he probably had Cecil yeah, maintained. Well, I think that was that was the interesting thing about Cheney, my recollection as a kid, was that he did his own makeup. Oh, yeah. Right, that yeah. he, you know, and there was, I remember there's some sort of photographic essay of him transforming himself. Yeah, and there's pictures of him with the makeup kid. And yeah, stuff. yeah, and, right, right. No, and he was great, and he was great at making great faces, you know, and I, there's a movie called Man of a Thousand Faces, I don't know if you've ever heard of it. Yeah. It's the story of him. Uh, James oh, yeah. James Cagney played him. Right. But, it was, I mean, not that he was a bad actor, but yeah. physically just was so wrong. Wrong and for the, that. And the makeups were done, again, with the new modern techniques of rubber and stuff, and they don't compare to what Cheney did out of the kit. You know? Right, and, yeah. Uh, yeah. So when you, so you're in high school and you're just doing basic stuff, but you, you, you in the back of your head, you know about this other stuff. Yeah, well, I mean, I met when I, when I turned 13, um, 
my parents, because I was going to be a teenager, they said, you know, is there something, we'd like to do something special for your birthday. Yeah. And I said, can you, this is when Universal first opened up the tour. Oh, wow. And I said, can we go on the Universal tour? Yeah. And in my head, I was going to hop off the tram and run to the makeup department yeah. and get a job, you know. And <laughs> you had a plan. Uh, yeah. And also, I knew that there's a, uh, there was a mask making company called Don Post Studios that was in Burbank. It was near Universal. Uh-huh. Who made these Universal Classic Monster masks that sold for thirty five dollars, which was you know Fortune. astronomical. Yeah. You know, never bought one, but I you could covered buy them. them. Yeah, yeah, you know, they were sold them at Disneyland and different places. Were it like apes and stuff? No, it was like it was you know Frankenstein Dracula. Oh, the classics. You know, yeah, yeah. Um, but the I knew that they were near Universal, so yeah. when we got near Universal, I asked my dad if we could uh, stop at a phone booth and look up Don Post Studios. Yeah. And again, I had him call because I was shy. Yeah. And he said, you know, my son, Ricky, makes masks and we're in the neighborhood. Is there any way we can come by? And they said, yeah, come on by. And they gave us a tour, which was great. And wow. on the wall, there was a picture of this guy, Bob Burns, who I read about in my monster magazines. And he had done some makeup stuff. He yeah. had a gorilla suit and a mummy and uh, was a film editor. And it had his phone number. So I wrote it down. <laughs> And again, being too shy um, to call him, eventually I got, you know, I asked my dad if he would call Bob, yeah. who lives in Burbank. And they invited us over. Uh, and he be- became a, a friend and uh, like a mentor. And he introduced me to a makeup artist that he worked at CBS, the local CBS station, mm-hmm. uh, who did the, the newscasters and stuff. Yeah. Um, didn't do the kind of stuff I wanted to right. do, you know, but he was really impressed by what I had done. And he said, I want to take you to the union, the makeup union. Uh, How old are you? I was 15 then. Yeah. I think. Went to the makeup union, uh, the business rep. At, at that time, it was all nepotism. You know, you had to be born into the business. Right. And, you know, I went there with a box full of stuff, you know, photos, heads, yeah. all kinds of stuff. And yeah. I, thought, I thought I was going to get a job, you right. know. And he told me to give up that I was never going to get in. And he said, you know, you basically have to be born into the business. You don't know anybody in the business. You don't have any friends in the business. You're never going to get in. Was he nasty? He was nasty, but I also think he was being realistic, yeah. you know, because that's the way it was at the time, you know, and he said, you, to get in, you have to serve an apprenticeship. You have to be 21 years old. I was 15. That's good information. Yeah. And he said, and the apprenticeships, there's only a few of them and they're going to go to a Westmore or, you know, the brother of a Westmore's uh, uncle or Westmore's a big name and Yeah. Makeup. I mean, there's a lot. Of, yeah, yeah. One time, all the Westmore's, every studio had a Westmore. It was a department head, you know. No kidding. Yeah. So, I mean, that was a little bit discouraging. When <laughs> you were a shy kid, it must have hurt your feelings. You got to walk out with your box of stuff. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> with Dejected. my tail between my legs. Yeah. yeah. Um, but it was kind of like, you know, fuck you. I'm going to show you, you yeah. know. And it gave me that much more motivation. Oh, know? yeah. You know, and, but the union fought me th- my career my whole career really yeah because i did i mean you, you won seven oscars i know and <laughs> i got hate mail from the union when i got oscars because uh, they were saying you're not a real makeup artist you know and it's like uh, what are you talking about and they go you know real makeup artists I, I, well let me cut to there was an open period the producers association who uh, said there's no new blood in the industry yeah all this nepotism thing isn't working very well. It was like a lot of people that weren't very good at their jobs. It must be stifling innovation. It, yeah, it yeah. was, yeah. And they said, we want to have this open period so that if you have 30 days on a, on a non-union film, we accept you as a, a union member. 
at that time, I was working on King Kong, the Dino De Laurentiis King Kong. You've done two Kongs. That's I, crazy. Yes, I know. I, I was King Kong, and I killed King Kong. And yeah, uh, I actually cut the two together at one time. You, know, you but, did for fun? Well, I actually did. I, 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 I always planned on cutting it together, but miraculously, they both were on two different TV channels, and they lined up almost perfectly. So I would Jackson's fl- Kong and, and Dino and, De Laurentiis. Yeah, so I would flip between me getting shot and then me shooting uh, Kong and the other one. <laughs> But uh, anyways, I had this, I thought, okay, I'm at, I call it the union. I said, I'm at MGM. I'm working in the old makeup lab, which was built when they, you know, when they were doing Wizard of Oz and these things. Um, And I want these days to count. And the business rep came out and he goes, well, what you're doing isn't makeup. And I go, what do you mean it isn't makeup? And he goes, it's not makeup. Like, I go, this lab has been here since the 30s. What were you doing, building a monkey? Yeah. Uh Uh-huh. Yeah. Uh, Which uh, traditionally had been done by makeup artists. Yeah. You know. Charlie Gomorrah was a great uh, ape actor guy who was a makeup artist who yeah. uh, was one of my, built the best gorilla suits ever. And How did they define it? Well, that's what I said. I said, what is makeup then if this isn't it? You know, yeah. He says, buying a product and putting it on, on someone's face. And I went, okay, I have black makeup and I paint around my eyes black. So these days should count. And, yeah. and he says, no, in that case, you're an actor doing his own makeup. So he wouldn't count my days. So you were actually playing the ape? I played the ape, yeah, and built it. Yeah. But you played the big ape? Yeah. I mean, it was all blue screen. You know, I right. mean, the whole publicity was about this 40-foot robot, yeah. uh, which is in less than six seconds of the movie. And you're Kong and the rest of it? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> uh, uh, sweating, sweating my brains out. On, uh, you know, on, on uh, this was, you know, all blue screen, photochemical, blue screen compositing days where you needed so much light. Yeah. And it was during the summer. Oh, the whole my crew, God. The whole crew's in, like, shorts and T-shirts or, or no shirts, and I have... A suit made out of bear hide with you know six inches of foam rubber on. Me, oh you know? my god! Yeah. And that was your construction. Yeah, I had to do it. Uh, it, it was a combined. Uh, Dino wanted this guy, Italian guy, Carlo Rombaldi, to to work on it as well. Uh-huh. Car- it was Carlos. A makeup idea. artist? No, what well, he did uh, like effects, oh. and, and it was Carlos' idea to build the big robot. And they, he said, this robot can do the whole movie. And they did. Dino like the robot. Well, it was good publicity. Uh-huh. You know, it sounds much better than some joker wearing a monkey suit yeah. you know and <laughs> classic the, the classic thing, monkey suit yeah and they were you know they were keeping me un- under wraps and, yeah. and one day you know I, I would put the suit on in the morning i had hard scleral lenses i put in my eyes you know um the black ones yeah you know, oh. well they just were full eye yeah. hard plastic lenses yeah uh, that i put in in the morning take off at lunch put them back in yeah you know. anyways i'm sitting on the set totally dressed like an ape and john gillerman the director of the film came up to me and goes time magazine's going to be doing an article on on the movie we don't want him to know that you're playing King Kong. Uh, so if the, the reporter asks you, don't, yeah. don't tell him. And yeah. It's like, John, I got a fucking gorilla suit on. I mean, what, what am I going to tell him, you know? <laughs> and uh, what they did, they stupidly yeah. did, was they showed him like 20 minutes of footage, all of it me. Yeah. You know? And then they go, now we're going to take you and show you the big robot, which wasn't finished at the time. Right. So it's in the mill at MGM. And it's in pieces and, and being constructed. And they go, here it is, you know. And he goes, well, I want to see the finished robot, you know. And they went, uh. He goes, yeah. I want to see the robot that did all the stuff that I just saw, you know. Right. And they went, um. You know, that's so that guy. How stupid were they? You right. Know? So, so that's where it came out that I played King Kong, you know, or otherwise I probably never would, nobody that's would know. That's crazy. So, yeah. like when, so when Jessica Lang's in the hand, that's the robot. That's a big, the mechanical hands were great. And that was actually built by Glenn Robinson, who was an old So that's different guy. than the robot. That's just the hand. Yeah, the hands. And a guy named Eddie Serkin was the, the guy main, main guy involved with that. And those worked beautifully. Uh, 
I was involved with that. It was based on the sculpture of my hand that yeah. the, the suit hand and right. I, I directed the people that were sculpting the big hands. But I mean, I was the only time I was ever even on the stage with Jessica, I think was it, there's a scene where she's in the hands and it kind of takes her clothes off. Yeah. And there's a shot over my shoulders. So they had me up on a, a big rostrum and they had a split diopter lens that could focus on close and far. Oh, wow. And so she was way down there. In so the hand? It, in the big hands. And, and so I was just, you know, being the back of my head. You know? <laughs> but, but the rest of the time, I'm looking at a hand that isn't there that's supposed to have Jessica in it. And she's looking at an ape that isn't there. Oh, yeah. it's so wild. That's such, that's like such, um, I was talking to my buddy about it. Like there, there, it's when people watch this stuff, even you as a kid, I mean, you know, it's an illusion and you know, it's not real. And it's not even about, I, I it's the effectiveness of the illusion. That is what it's all about. Mm. It's not, it's not about realism in a way. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, I love Ray Harryhausen films, the stop motion animation stuff, you sure. know, and I knew that it wasn't real. And also, I mean, fortunately, again, my dad was smart enough to know, he knew what stop motion was. You know, I had a friend uh, who, you know, asked his mother how they did the Emer from uh, 20, uh, 20 million miles to earth. And she goes, oh, it's a, they shaved a squirrel, you know, <laughs> and it was yeah. like, you know, uh, it's not, you know, it's an armatured puppet that you should frame at a time. You know, my dad knew about that and I did stop motion as a kid, you know. Yeah, right? sure. Now, wait, now let's not leave that story hanging. Now, how did you, did you argue yourself to get the time to count for Kong for the union? Uh, oh, I did. Oh. And, but it, he wouldn't let it count. He wouldn't. Uh, no, he said it doesn't. And I, it was an open period. And it was the exact time I was on King Kong. What the fuck? Yeah. So what, uh, you know, they, they, what it was is, you know, it, they, they didn't like the rubber stuff, you know, and they, and because they didn't do it. And there were very few people and the people who did do it, they called lab men. They didn't call them makeup artists. They were lab men. They were dirty. You know, they worked with plaster and clay. We, we dressed. So there's a snobbery to it. There was, you know. Huh. Now, it's a completely different world now. I mean, they totally accept me as a makeup artist, makeup effects. <laughs> Good. Um, well, congratulations. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and now I've retired, yeah. you know, so. Only <laughs> well, like, what, 50 years in the game? Yeah. More? <laughs> yeah, yeah. They accept it? Yeah, eventually. Yeah. Seven Oscars? <laughs> yeah. Innovation? That's crazy, the stubbornness of institutions. Yeah. Well, you know, I mean, I, I they actually were changed they were going to change when I, I did get in the union and I got in on a lie. I, what happened on King Kong? I got a script for a movie called the ghoul from outer space. Yeah. And you know, this King Kong was my first like major picture. And at that time it was the most expensive picture made. Yeah. You know? And I, I was doing non-union low budget films before that. Right. That's all I could do. And uh, I kind of thought I kind of, it's going to be a step backwards to do a movie called the ghoul from outer space. So <laughs> yeah. I, I, I thought, well, I'll turn in a, a, a high bid and they probably will say no. And, right. and I think I said it cost $10,000 to do all these things, you know? And they said, okay. And I went, uh, <laughs> hey, you're okay, in. I need one other thing. I said, I need you to post date checks so that I have 30 days as make oh, to artist. make the window. Yeah. Yeah. And they did. So I got in in a lie. Oh, and, that's great. And a bunch of people, really good people got in during that period. And, and the union called us all 30-day wonders. And know? did it change the face of the industry? It definitely changed the face of the industry. People got in because they really wanted to be makeup artists. You know, I and mean- taking like, it in a new direction? Yeah. Yeah. And like I said, people were going, you know, you're the worst thing to ever happen. You know, the business reps said, the worst thing to ever happen in the art of makeup. And I went, why? I mean, I, I idolize makeup artists. All I ever wanted to be was a makeup artist. Yeah. I, uh, and I want to be the best I can possibly be. I eat, sleep, and drink and live this stuff. Yeah. What's wrong with that? You know? And, and they had a problem with the, it, it was, so their basic problem was prosthetics. 
and yeah. and you know, things that were outside of the realm of something almost archaic it seems with makeup yeah and i think part of it was too i mean i i had some ability and i was young oh. and i think it was a threat thing too you know but it's just, it's it's interesting that things get so that it's not about the creativity anymore it's about status quo well you know the union's main job during that time especially was to protect the incompetent you know i mean you would there would be guys that you know you couldn't you would have to hire everybody that was in the union had to be hired before you could hire somebody that was out of it and there were people that just weren't very good they were always on the bottom of the list and it, it was and that, yeah i guess that's still it's an interesting issue you know, around in terms of hiring and stuff, that this business in particular seems to carry a lot of people, a lot of dead weight that just keep moving around because of nepotism or or friend, you know, or, or relationships, and they and they keep out a lot of people that would bring fresh eyes to and fresh talent. Yeah, it's it's unfortunate. It's a lot better than it used to be. And sure. and, and you know, my, I mean, mind you, well, now I mean, anyone can do it at home, it, in a way. Yeah, yeah. And also, though, I mean, it. I mean, it, it's an it, it's a necessary evil. I mean, you know, the producers would. I mean, as it is. Uh-huh. I, I was thinking about this the other day. I, I, you know, I thought, God, I can't. Um, the hours that I work, you know, a normal film day is a twelve-hour day. Yeah. But when you add on top of it a three and a half hour makeup in the morning, right, and an hour removal time, right, you know, and setup time, you know, I my normal day was an eighteen hour day. Sure, I did like fifty years of that. Yeah, you know? right. Like, I'm surprised I'm still alive. You know? Yeah, you seem really well. So okay, so that was Kong. But how do you get started? What's the first movies? Who? How do you learn? Okay, my first film was a movie called The Octo Man. Yeah. I was a full-time student at a community college to basically to stay out of Vietnam. Uh, in Covina? Uh, it was in Walnut, in, uh-huh. uh, uh, out in that area. My hobby was an expensive hobby to make masks and stuff. I, I found a place where I could buy a, a cord of rubber. It was like eight ninety-eight or something. Uh-huh. And I was getting like a quarter a week allowance when I when I when my parents could afford it. Yeah, you know, I would mow lawns, but I have major allergies, so that was hard. I thought I need a job because I want to. I want more materials, and I walked. I didn't have a car, so I walked to every fast food place, every market, to try to find a job. Nobody, yeah. nobody wanted me. For some reason, in Covina, almost in in Glendora, Cloaky Studios, which was a place that made Gumby and Davy and Goliath, was located out there. Yeah. My dad, when he was a truck driver and delivering plumbing supplies, accidentally it was next door to where the, he was supposed to deliver it. Walked uh-huh. in by accident. And he says, well, you know, I remember this place in Covina that did stop motion. You know, maybe you could get a job there. For Gumby? Yeah. So I, I walked there with a the box full of stuff, again, like when I went to the union. Yeah. Uh, and said, you know, I can sculpt. I can make molds. I do stop motion. You know, I paint. Um, I'm looking for a job. And they said, start tomorrow. And this was summer between my junior and senior year of high school. Really? So I would walk to three, three and a half miles to work every day and walk back. What were you doing over there? I Well, I did... Mostly, they called me an artist. You know, I I, I made I sculpted the, some of the puppets, made the molds, cast the rubber. And you're in high school. I was in high school. Yeah, but those are those are seminal. Those are like yeah, no, everyone it's re- knows those. Yeah, no, it was really cool. They, I they, don't they were know, doing the Davy. Yeah, that's right. You know, God is everywhere, Davy. <laughs> I heard that voice forward and backwards every day. Did you know, you know the guy? Uh, it was Hal John Smith did the voice. It was Otis the Drunk in uh, uh, in uh, Andy Griffith's show. Oh, yeah, really? Yeah, and the guy who did Pokey was actually the uh, production manager at, at Cloakies, but uh, one of the animators yeah. uh, was a guy named Sneaky Pete Kleino. Pete Kleino was his name, but yeah. he was a pedal steel guitar player, session pedal steel guitar uh-huh. player, played with everybody. Yeah. Amazing. 
and he was like 30 years old and I was like 17. And I thought, you know, this guy's cool and he's 30 years old. It's nice that you could be cool when you're 30. You yeah. Know? But we used to get in major like clay fights, uh, which was crazy. You know, we'd wad up gumbies and throw them at each other, you know, on the stage where everybody's doing stop motion, you know, and it's a frame at a time and it yeah. takes forever. You yeah. Know? We would hit a, a, a set, you know, days work would be gone. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah. it, Cloakies was like a magnet for anybody that was interested. It was one of the few places that did stop motion. So. Mm people started coming in and I, there was another guy a few years older than me, Doug Beswick, who worked there, who like read Famous Monsters. He was a Ray Harryhausen fan. We became fast friends. He knew other people that did this stuff. Yeah. So all of a sudden there was this group that I would hang out with that were these guys that did stop motion and, 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 and special effects and, yeah. and go, you know, maybe someday we can work on a real movie. Right. You know? And so many of us have Oscars now. It you know, really? The same group of people. Yeah. And he's still in touch with them? Yeah. yeah. And uh, Dennis Murin, who was one of them, has more Oscars than I do. Wow. Yeah. But it was through this connection that I actually got handed down my first job, this Octoman job. Originally, it was going to be stop motion. A guy named Jim, Jim Danforth was going to do yeah. it. They decided it was too expensive. He suggested they build a suit, and they were they hired a couple of other people that were going to do a suit. Right. Another film came along at the time called Flesh Gordon, which was a porno movie. <laughs> yes, I remember that. I remember yeah. when I was a kid that it was the posters for it. it yeah. was like a, a soft porn, though. Yeah. Right. Yeah. yeah. Well, it started out. It was actually it started out as hardcore porn, uh-huh. but when these guys, because you know the jobs were there weren't many jobs for to make rocket ships and, and effects. So I guess that's like that's the makeup artist is their trick. Their 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 angle also was trying to draw a line between special effects and makeup. Well, that's the thing. Uh, what I do is is a gray area right you know and uh, to me i found it as the evolution of makeup you yeah know? That's what, I, that makes sense you know it started out with nose putty and grease paint you uh-huh. know and then they went to rubber stuff and people rejected the rubber stuff and you know and i you know when one of the things like uh, when i did american werewolf with the the transformation we made these prop heads that actually physically changed right and they really objected to that they go it's not on our person it's not makeup and i go but it's i couldn't do it on a person it, I carried it through, started out with makeup and ended up with this. Right. I see it as the evolution of makeup. I don't like the limitations. I mean, I started doing puppets and, and animatronic stuff because a makeup on a person's face, you can only build up so much. The eyes are where they are. You know, yeah. the nose is, if you have a big nose like mine, you can't make it smaller. Right. You can make it bigger. Right. I make a puppet head, I can put the eyes wherever I want. Yeah. You know. I like that. And more than two sometimes. Yeah, yeah. You know. So, I mean, I, li- I didn't like the limitations. I don't like, you know. Of the human head. Yeah. Let's <laughs> make a head. Yeah. We can do whatever we want. <laughs> so, you know, I, I just considered it, you know, and I, I like making stuff, you know. Yeah. You know yeah. So, Octoman was, uh, did it turn out to be a uh, stop action or no? No, it was a suit. Yeah. And it, these guys were going to do it, but they went, it went on to... Uh, Flesh Gordon, because it was more up there line, oh, you know. It. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So they handed it over to me. They uh, First thing, they, they it was designed by somebody else. A, a, a fantasy artist designed this octopus man thing. They gave me a drawing. They wanted me to do a maquette, which was like a little model. Yeah. So I did a maquette, and then they said, uh, do you want the job? And I, again, I was a full-time student. It was like the end of my second year. At, uh, at the went, community college? Yeah. Yeah. And I said, yeah, I'll, I'll do it. You know, And I had like, you know, six weeks, I think, and... A thousand dollars. Yeah, and uh, my friend Doug Beswick, who I met uh, at Cloakies, had a little workshop. This was more than I could do in my bedroom. You know, so yeah, we, sure. we actually figured out a way to make this suit for a thousand dollars. It looked it's the best thing in the movie. I mean, yeah. the movie was shot in ten days of Bronson ca- caves. Yeah, everything was there. Yeah, we lost a day shooting because of a stupid accident that, uh, and. Uh, the director was actually tearing pages out of the script. We don't need this. We don't need that. You know? Wow. And, you know, it was my real introduction to the film industry. And 
in the first day's filming, uh, you know, they said it's going to be in Bronson Caves. You know, we, I went there with Doug Beswick. We're, we have our octopus man suit in his car, his 57 Chevy. And it's like nobody there. Yeah. And we're like looking around, looking around and go, what the hell? Did we get something wrong? So we had to go back down the hill to a pay phone. This is before yeah. cell phones. Called a production office. And they go, oh yeah, we pushed for a day. And it's like, you didn't tell us. You know? <laughs> well, we forgot. It's like, the movie's called The Octoman. You know, I mean, yeah. I, through my whole life, I go, you know, the movie's called Gremlins. You know, the movie's yeah. called, you know, and you're doing this thing and that seems to be the least important thing in anybody's <laughs> mind, you know? Right. You know, so. Yeah. We got the, we got the guy, <laughs> the thing. But that was, so you, you got a good foundation then. Well, I mean, insanity. Yeah, I, I saw that it wasn't what I thought it was going to be, you know, but still. It's In like, what way? The, the trouble, the, the troubleshooting or the just the, the consistency or what? The all, glamour? All, all those things, yeah, you know. Yeah. And, you know, I thought you're doing a movie called The Octoman. I'm the guy that makes The Octoman. It's important. Yeah. And, you know, they, again, they, I, at that time I was a long haired kid. Yeah. My friend Doug Beswick was a long haired kid. The guy who was the DP called us the girls. You oh, know, right. this was, you yeah. know. Uh, you know, and it was just like, oh, come on, man. You know, we just want to do this stuff and make it cool. Yeah, you know? right. Yeah, right. You know, it's like, you know, <laughs> we're here for the, this, we're going to make it cool and fun. But the good thing that happened yeah. is my second movie, which was a film called Schlock, yeah. was John Landis's first film. I was 20, he was 21. I got the job because first John worked it at, as a mailboy at Fox. Yeah. And he knew John Chambers who did Planet of the Apes. Yeah. He saw a film called Trog, which was a Joan Crawford film yeah. about a missing link that's really kind of a sad thing to watch. You know, right. End of her career in this crappy monster movie. Uh. And he was just so inspired by how bad Trog was that he wanted to make a movie like that. So he did the Schlock Thropus, <laughs> which was this ape man. He went to John Chambers. Chambers said, you know, it'd be $100,000. And he go, oh, no, the movie's only going to cost $15,000, you know. <laughs> then he went to Don Post Studios where I would go uh, to buy rubber and yeah. supplies because there weren't suppliers around, you know. It was hard to find this stuff. And I, I at, it was the only time in my life I had a business card. And, yeah. you know, it's a Rick Baker monster maker, and I gave it to him. And they wanted nothing to do with John, and they, they gave him a price. But they go, there's a kid who comes in here. Anyway, so they gave him my card, and yeah. John, John came out. Again, I'm still pretty shy at this point. And... He lived in Westwood. He drove to Covina uh, with his business partner, his producer, uh, John O'Rourke. But it's like, you know, where the fuck am I? I'm, am I still in California? You know, it was like, you know, I've never <laughs> driven this far before. Just, you know. And, but he was like, in my, he came into my bedroom, which was my sacred space with all, you know, I had masks and things everywhere. Yeah. And he's like touching and he's like, you know, he's, John's very hyper and loud. And, yeah. Uh, he was flipping out. And I was kind of flipping out in the other way because I was scared, you yeah. know. And uh, <laughs> but you know, it turned out to be you know one of the best things that ever happened to me because yeah. I did Schlock. Yeah, he had already written American Werewolf. He told me the whole story. Yeah, because I want to do a transformation. To me, it doesn't make sense that you would sit in a chair like Lon Chaney Jr. and be perfectly still until you change. I want to show the pain. I want to you know, I want to do it in. It, it, the movie takes it's real. It takes place in an apartment. I, it's not going to have horror film like yeah. you know. And he goes, I want him to be able to move. You know, how would you do that? And I go. I, I don't know, but I sure would like to try, yeah. you know? He goes, what's going to be my next movie, you know? Cut to 10 years later, he finally got the money to make it. Well, that's sort of the interesting thing about when I was going through this stuff is that there's a lot of, you know, problem solving. You know, that you know, you have a director that has a vision, like that specifically, it seems like that request of you or whether or not you could do the transformation and show the agony of it, 
uh, was in a completely new interpretation of a fairly classic trope, mm-hmm. you know, which is the Wolfman mm-hmm. in horror movies. Mm-hmm. It, you've been seen it a million times, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. So you got, and it seems like in this genre, in horror and fantasy and science fiction, you do have like, a, you know, 10 to 15 archetypes that sort of evolve. That, you know, the new challenge is how do we make this alien different than the last alien? How do we make this ape different than the last ape? How is this wolfman going to be different? Yeah, yeah. And so that challenge, you know, that's not just makeup. I mean, there's a sort of engineering. Oh, yeah. No, I mean, I, you know, it's uh, so many times I have to invent things that right. haven't been done before in a film on in a schedule and budget. You know, I mean, the weird thing was, I mean, prior to uh, American Werewolf, I would have to beg people to let me do something, you know. Can I put a mustache on this guy? How about a scar? You yeah. know, it's like well, you worked with um, uh, what's his name, Dick Smith. Yes, uh, Dick was uh, the greatest makeup artist ever, I think, and and uh, he helped me out a lot. He lived in New York, uh, and I managed to meet him when I was eighteen. And How'd you do that? I had um, a school project where I was supposed to look up somebody in Who's Who in America uh-huh. and when I was in eighth grade or something, and I looked up Dick Smith, not, and I looked up you know Boris Karloff yeah. and all these people. And they had his address, and I, I wrote it down on yeah. a piece of paper. Again, I mean, this to me would be like writing a letter to God. You know, I mean, I, I was afraid. You knew about him. Oh, I right. knew about him, and and I. What he, which work of his was the most powerful you know, to you? There's everything they did just looked so much more real than anybody else. Well, I remember the, his makeup on Little Big Man, oh, yeah. the, that opening up with Jack Crab, the uh-huh. opening of Dustin Hoffman in that yeah. makeup with yeah. that cigarette. That was. Like that was mind blowing at the time, and I was a kid. Oh yeah, well that I got to watch him put that makeup on because this is right when I wrote him. Anyways, I had this piece of paper. Yeah, his address. When I graduated from high school, my parents were going to go back to Binghamton, New York, so I could meet my grandmother, uh, who was like ninety and, yeah. and dying. And I was like, oh shit, I don't want to go to New York. I, I want to make masks. Now I'm out of school. You know, yeah, it's yeah. a summer, you know. Yeah. And they went, oh wait, New York, you know. And I got up that pa- magic piece of paper with it. Right. And I go, okay, it's now or never. Yeah. So, you know, I wrote Dick a letter. It's in the book, actually. Yeah. Um, my mom typed it for me, you know, uh, hoping to get a response. And I got, the, I sent him pictures of things that I had made. A lot of things were copies of his, yeah. of the makeups that he did. And I got this amazing response that he just says, I've never seen anything like this from anybody, let alone an 18-year-old kid. Yeah. Uh, I can't wait to meet you, you know. And <laughs> I thought, you know, it was right at the beginning of this two-week trip to New York. And uh-huh. I thought it was going to be, hello, Mr. Smith. And I, you know, spent a half an hour right, with him. Right, right. He sent my parents away who drove me there. And he, he gave me a yellow legal pad. And he goes, I'm going to tell you a lot of stuff. You should write it down so you don't forget it. It's like, okay. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Told me anything I wanted to know, you know, he was about the process. Yeah. And formulas and all kinds of stuff. And I just couldn't wait to get back home to, to you know, use this. So he saw you as a, you know, he, he, he said, this is the next guy in his mind. He's like, this guy gets it uh-huh. and he needs, he, I need to, he's a repository for this information. Yes. Yes. But and, he was, he was that way with everybody. He was very uh-huh. open because he on the East coast and he was self-taught and yeah. He he talked to Hollywood people and tried to find out how to do things, and it was like you know it's trade secret. You know we're not going to tell you. So he figured out his own way, and it was a better way. You know what were his specialties? Uh, well, he he did you know the most realistic human old age yeah. and, and and that kind of stuff, but also invented. He was very inventive. He invented yeah. materials and and processes that nobody had done before. So when I sent him that letter, I got this amazing reply. Yeah. 
uh, I'd go to the mailbox every day, you yeah. know, and one day it was like, oh, Rick Baker, and it was a Dick Smith, and it was spongy, and uh-huh. he, he actually gave me a bad form casting of this, uh, one of the makeups I copied that, that he did, uh-huh. but there was also a picture of a little big man makeup, a test that he did, Yeah, and he goes, you know, besides saying he can't wait to meet me, he goes, yeah. we're going to be filming in the Veterans Hospital in Westwood, if you want to come watch me apply, you know, that would be great, you oh. know? so I got to watch him put that makeup on. Um, How long did that take? I think it was like three, three hours yeah. or so. Um, so you sitting there with Dustin? Yeah. You know, I, was, I again, I was trying to stay out of the way, yeah. you know, and, 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 and just hang back and watch, you know. But you were in technique? Yeah. And watch how he puts the pieces on. Yeah. And what Dick did, which people in Hollywood, in Hollywood, everybody was doing one big piece. Yeah. You know, it would have been, that, that would have been basically, you pull it over your head and glue right. it around the eyes. Dick made overlapping appliances. And the reason being, you can actually glue it. You know, because it's glued everywhere. And if there's a spot that's not glued, if you miss when it moves, it does a weird buckle. Uh-huh. You know? So he would do these separate pieces that overlapped and it was better at applying and it moved better. And, uh, you know, it was great to be able to watch him do a makeup. You know? Yeah. And a little big man, you know. Yeah. And Dustin Hoffman, you know, he, uh, I have this really vivid memory of him because uh, it was, you know, this veterans hospital. Yeah. They had like a padded room with a little glass window and he went in this padded room yeah. and screamed at the top of his lungs to try to make his voice sound uh, raspy. So I actually, you know, I actually looked through the little window and yeah. kind of looked up and there's this 120 year old man, you know, <laughs> sitting there screaming, you know, it was just, it was just like so crazy. You know? <laughs> it's wild, yeah. man. I mean, that's the thing that's, you know, I mean, it's something I found out when I, I read the book, you know, like, Your I, book? I, yeah, I complain too much about the industry, but it's an amazing industry where you get to do and see and, and meet people. It's and, magic. And, yeah. You know, and it's, it, it, it's unbelievable. I mean, it's like time traveling, you know, you go like oh, when yeah. I did the Wolfman, you know, in London, you're, you're, you look around and it's like you're in the 1800s, you sure. know, when you're filming that stuff. What, that was the Venezio one? Yeah. 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 You, I think you got an Oscar for that, right? I did. Yeah. Yeah. That movie was a really weird vibe. They didn't, a movie's called The Wolfman. The only people that really wanted to make a movie called The Wolfman is me and Dave Elsie and Lou Elsie, who I did it with, and Benicio and Anthony Hopkins. But the directors and the producers were like embarrassed that they were doing a monster movie, you know? Then what the hell they do it for? I, that's what I said, you know? <laughs> and we were like the low man on the totem pole, like the bastard children, you know? And huh. I mean, I had, the production manager would call me in the office and go, why are you ordering this hair? You know, I go, what do you mean? Why am I wearing this hair? And they go, what this, you got a bunch of hair here. You know, what's that for? <laughs> and, and, and behind his desk, there's a big sign that says Wolfman. Yeah. Right. So I got up and I covered up the wolf part and I go, we're making a movie called The Wolfman. Without the hair, we have a man. Yeah. You know, I'm going to make him a wolf. <laughs> and, you, and you need hair for that? And you go, yes. It's like, you know, come on. You That's know? crazy. So, do, but you worked on, you worked with Dick uh, on movies later? I worked, I got to work on The Exorcist yeah. with Dick. I was, again, in 20, I think. Um, and what happened- You were 20? Yeah. Um, so, something like early yeah. 20s anyways. He was a one-man show. He worked in his basement. Yeah. And the rubber stuff, you know, it's use once and throw away. So we call them appliances or yeah. prosthetics. Right. So like Linda's makeup. Yeah. Um, they, he did a number of designs. You had to do it every day new? Yeah. But ah. You had to have a new piece every day. But he had- did a number of tests. They chose one. He prepared all that stuff because when he's filming, he couldn't be making these things. It takes like a day of yeah. baking the rubber to, right. before he can open it up and find out if it worked. Wow. So he had like, you know, 50-some sets all made. The very first day that she is in her makeup, he puts it on, she comes out in like one of the grips or, or electrician or something goes, oh, look, she's got her mask on now. And Billy Freak and the director went, it's too masky, do another one. 
you know, and Dick goes, what? <laughs> you know, and it's like, it's too masky. Do another one. He goes, I, we're filming. I, you know, I, I worked for months, you know, I, you know, and so his solution was call up me. And I came out and, and lived in his house and worked in his basement on the exorcist, you know? And, yeah. And how cool was that? Because you know? Friedkin was crazy. Well, no, I mean, Friedkin was right, actually. I say, you know, actually, sometimes directors are right, you know? Yeah. And, that, and that was one of the cases, you know? And I was outraged. I mean, how could you question <laughs> Dick <laughs> Smith? <laughs> yeah. You know, the greatest makeup artist right, ever, you know? Right. And I was, I was, I was wanted to punch Friedkin, you know? Yeah, you know? Yeah. And I was there when, he, when Dick was trying these different things out and, and um, uh, William Peter Blatty and Freak would come in and yeah. make suggestions and stuff. And I, Wild. Yeah. But, you know, I got to, I got to work on that film. And you, know? you were on the set and you, you know. You I, got... was, I was mostly in Dick's basement during filming, making, yeah. making the pieces. I did get to go to Iraq and, and help him with the Max von Sydow's makeup, which that's the best makeup in the movie. Uh, you know, Max has an age makeup. He's Father Marin, the right. old priest, but people yeah. don't realize he was made up, you know. Right. And those are the hardest kind of makeups to pull off. You know, and well, yeah, and you did that with uh, you know, I remember remember the autobiography of Miss Jane Pittman, which was a big deal when my, I mean, I was 10, but I remember my mom watched it. I remember it was this amazing revelation of the aging makeup, yeah. And I was, I was like 20 again in my early 20s, but you learned that stuff from Dick, right? Yeah, yeah, and that was like, did you get a, an Emmy for that? I did get an Emmy, Stan Winston and I uh, did it together, and we both got Emmy. Stan Winston, yeah, he was an old timer, right? Yeah. Who's now passed? Yeah, he was one of the big guys. Yeah, yeah. It was Stan and I were the two considered the top, you know, at the time. Well, how old was he? Older than you? No, it was a little bit older than me, but he died uh, younger than I am now. You know, oh, I'm really? almost sixty nine. He think he was sixty six oh, or something. You know? That's sad. Yeah, I just found it interesting that there was in the books, which are stunning books. Two volumes, all pictures, a lot of great. You know, there's the story of you. There's a forward by uh by landis is it or and by jack peter jackson both, both yeah peter jackson john landis dick smith does the the uh, outro the uh mm-hmm. afterward or whatever right which he wrote years ago uh, uh, is he still with us no oh, he no. passed a number in uh, a number of years ago yeah so, i mean i knew i was going to do this book and i asked him to but it was sort of interesting to me to have that realization that y- you know you're dealing you know you deal with a lot of apes you deal with a lot of aliens you know, and it seems that, uh, and then, you know, these, the human transformations, the work you did with Eddie Murphy on the Nutty Professor and what, Norbit and the Nutty Professors, two Nutty Professors. And Coming to America. Coming too. to America where, and then in like Tropic Thunder, you've made a black guy white and a white guy black. Yeah. <laughs> and, and a black guy and Asian. And, yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. It's stuff that, you know, I, you get in trouble for now. <laughs> I, I don't know if you would. Do you think you would? I know people who have, you know, there's... You know, oh, I guess that's go, true that people say, like, why wouldn't you just hire an Asian guy? But but the the whole hook of those movies with Eddie was that he's going to play everything. I know. I know. It's, you know, that's the thing. He's an actor, and actors become different characters. Sure. You know, and that's why you do makeup. I think in the world that you're talking about, it seems that people should be sort of encouraged to try to do these interesting and different things. I mean, to see Eddie Murphy play an old Jewish guy, which you made him into, right? Yeah. I mean, that was sort of stunning. Yeah, it was fun, too. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And, you know, the thing that w- my relationship with Eddie and, and that film, you know, I mean, Eddie, 
didn't know how he was going to play it. You know, it, uh-huh. well, he, I mean, he kind of did. I mean, he re- he really wanted it to be very stereotypical uh, uh, Jewish guy. You yeah, know, right. Playing it for laughs. And when I did the makeup, he said, you know, I, I did a test. I demanded to test this makeup because it's pretty extreme change, you yeah. know, and very difficult makeup to do. And and when I tested it, he, you know, he sa- was sitting in the makeup chair looking at himself in the mirror and he just said, Rick, I, I just don't feel that I'm doing your makeup justice by doing this stereotype. I mean, this looks so real. He goes, I, I, I want to, uh, can I just have our friend come in and improvise something? Uh, and go, yeah, let me film this. You know, so I got my video camera out, filming him in the, in the mirror, l- looking at himself. And they improvised a scene about this old Jewish guy who got attacked by some black guys. And, yeah. But it was serious. Yeah. And I went, oh my God, this guy's a really good actor. Yeah. <laughs> you know? But then he ended up doing the, the shtick. Yeah, because it's much funnier, you know? <laughs> and that makeup was very much based on uh, my father-in-law, Nestor, who wasn't Jewish, but he, I, I liked his face and he had kind of a big nose and, you know, Landis said to me, I don't do it. I don't want a big nose. You know, and I yeah. go, you know, Eddie's got a wide nose and I have to counteract that with, and the only way I can do that is kind of help build this out. And it's like, you know, I have to build it a certain, it's a certain size, you know, but, yeah. but it's, uh, you know, it was a, a really fun makeup to do and it was fun to just to see what Eddie did with it. And know? all the fat suits. Oh yeah, fat suits. Was, was fat that me. your technology? Uh, I mean, people had done suits before like that. I mean, I tried to make it a little more organic. What I did with the gorilla suits as well is, is you know, a lot of times they make just hollow padding that you have a lot of right. room inside. But I, I tried to make it more like muscles, and I have bony parts, you know, like uh-huh. shoulder blades and things. Was used to? Was it weighted? Uh, the the Nutty Professor stuff was. It, the suit itself was very light, but we actually had like water balloons we'd put in uh-huh. when it would show up, you know, when it was needed, and when it didn't, we'd take them out. I yeah. forgot to tell you the thing that that destroyed my brain when I was younger was from Live and Let Die. Oh yeah. Did you do that stuff? I well, you helped I, along. With I it? I did. Uh, I started out, I was going to do Yafakoto's makeup, um, and they, he didn't like me because uh, I didn't agree with the thing. He had some really ridiculous ideas. I've always been very vocal if I don't agree with something, yeah. <laughs> if it's my work. You know? right. And he eventually said, you know, you don't know anything about black people. Uh, I want a black makeup artist. And uh, I, I lost that part of that job, but I did do... Uh, Jeffrey Holder's, there's a head where Jeffrey yeah. Holder gets his head shot. Right, and he looks up. Yeah, I that made that a, head. And what I made, about the exploding outfit Kodo? I, I did the, if, the inflated head of him, yeah. So I got kind of got my revenge and made him kind of a fat Albert looking uh, <laughs> thing, you know. <laughs> but it but it's funny, up. Yeah, you know, but it's funny how, and he was right. I mean, I didn't grow up in a neighborhood that had yeah. black people. You sure. Know. I did know, uh, my mom, you know, because... Uh, I, I was like a latchkey kid, you know. Yeah. Sometimes I had to go to the, the bank with her, and there was a, a janitor who was a black guy who became a friend, yeah. uh, you know, and, and he kind of watched me, you know. But I, 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 I didn't really know a lot. But I, I don't know a lot about aliens or other things either. I do the research, and right. I, I figured out, you know. Um, so in in a way, he was right, but uh, but also, you know, I did Cicely Tyson a few years later and won an Emmy. Sure, you know, sure. I did Eddie Murphy. You know, so you I did, learned. Yeah, you know, it's like, you know, it's, it's what like did he? A, what, what set him off exactly? Do you remember? He well, he wanted this disguise. First of all, I, I, I told him again. I'm a kid. Yeah, you know, <laughs> when I'm doing this, but I said you. This is he's miscast. You know, I said you cast him because he looks like the character that should be the makeup. The makeup is it's a character called Mr. Big, who's supposed to be this gangster, this big, scary black guy. Yeah. Which job it was. The, 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 he was. the makeup was supposed to be the guy named Kananka, I think it was, who was more like an African delegate kind of guy. Yeah. He was a more Sidney Portier looking, yeah. you know, kind of guy. 
And well, first of all, he didn't like that because I kind of said that to him, you know. Yeah. But he goes, you know, I want him to have red hair and I want him to have a head shaped like a bullet. And uh, he was just naming off all this ridiculous stuff. And yeah. I go, this is going to give this away as a makeup instantly if you yeah. have a pointed head with red hair. Yeah. You know, you're supposed to look natural and stuff like that. And he, I mean, I argued with him. I was, I've never been a yes man. Yeah. You know, if it's affecting my work and I don't agree with it, I, I fight for it. Right. You know? And this case, I, uh, you know, and my fight turned out to me not getting that job, yeah. you know. Yeah. Right. <laughs> yeah. But uh, but you moved on. Yeah. It, it, it's like, it's sort of astounding. Like American Werewolf, that was another one that was life-changing because Griffin Dunn's slow decomposition was what you made the heads for. Yeah. Well, right. it was appliances on him. But oh, it, appliance, it, yeah. yeah. But except for the last stage, which was a puppet. No, yeah. Because he was supposed to be basically a talking skeleton. Right, right, right. But that was so disturbing when he's just sitting there. The comedy of that and the horror of it, what it was a, that was a unique mix. Oh, it was. And it still holds up really well. I got to watch it again. Yeah. And, and you, you know, Griffin was like, when I did the makeup on the first test, Yeah, he, you know, he started, as he was putting his stuff on, he was just getting more and more upset looking and like sinking down in the chair. And it's like, obviously upset. And it's like, Griffin, what's the matter? And he goes, what's the matter? Look at me, you know? And I go, yeah. And he goes, I, I, it's, nobody's going to look at me, you know? And I go, did you read the script? It's like, yeah. Doesn't it say that your neck is torn out and half your face is off? Yeah. And he goes, but I didn't think it was going to look like this. And I go, I did. You know? And uh, so I called up Landis, who was in location. You yeah. know? And I go, you got to talk to Griffin. You know, Griffin turned out to be great. You what know? do you think was going to happen? Of course, they're going to look at him. Yeah. Yeah. You know, but, uh, you know, and I, I think Griffin's probably known for that part more than anything, you know. Yeah. And, and he was terrific to work with, you know, but the first thing was a bit of a shock, you know. I bet. Yeah. So what did you do on, uh, on the Star Wars, the first Star Wars? The cantina scene in the uh, you know where they go in the cantina. And sure, all aliens. Oh, that's so memorable. Yeah, all uh, the different aliens. Yeah, it originally was done in England by Stuart Freeborn, who did, yeah. who did the Wookiee, um, and it was his film. Uh huh. But George wanted to embellish on that scene and didn't wasn't really crazy about some of the stuff that was in there, and again because of my friends I work met at Cloakies, yeah. Uh, who were doing the visual the effects. The action guys? Yeah, who, but they were, Dennis Muir and Ken Ralston yeah. uh, were doing the visual effects, uh, the spaceships and all that stuff. Uh -huh. And George, they'd already finished. Nobody knew that Star Wars was going to be Star Wars. You know? Right. And George said, I need some, I want to add some stuff. Do you know anybody that can make a mask? And it's like, yeah, we do. You know, so <laughs> they called me and this was in Val Jean over there uh, by the the airport in Van Nuys. And, yeah. And he showed me on a flatbed editor the scene as it was. And I just went, this is so cool, you know. And he goes, we don't have any money. You know, we don't have much time, but I really want to like to add to this. And it's like, I'm there. I'll, I'll do it. I add said, characters? Yeah. yeah. And I said, I have a bunch of masks I made for myself that we can use yeah. you know, besides making specific things. Right. So a great artist. You uh, just had a bunch of weird aliens on, yeah, yeah, and things on like, the shelves? Things that, or not even aliens. I yeah. One uh, devil mask. Right. Oh, and, I remember that guy. Yeah. I, I kind of wondered why he was there. Yeah, I know. Well, you know, why not? You know, <laughs> it, it, you know, childhood's in. There's a whole thing. There's like these devil, the aliens sure. look like devils. You but know. I just remember that stood out. Like, that looks like just a devil guy. Yeah. And there's also a werewolf mask that I did that was a, a I did as a mass production, a limited mass production mask. Yeah. I thought these things were going to be just stuck in the background. George focused on them. You right. Know? But all the aliens you see in the very beginning, opening shot, but uh, are mine. And then the band is mine. Uh, it was my design. And- but it was shot on a different continent by different people uh -huh. months later, and you would never know. The band is never really there when Harrison Ford's there. Oh. But because movies are magic and, yeah. and are cuts, you know, you think you see the band, and then you see Harrison Ford sitting there with Greedo, 
and the band's playing and you think they're there. Yeah. You know? well, that, and that band became like this sort of modern, it's like it was a, tro- uh, uh, what would you call it? It was iconic. Yeah. And they, people made fun of it for years. Oh, no, he did a Richard Pryor uh, special day where they made fun of the Star Wars canteen. Oh, that's right. You, did, you, you worked on that. You had to make uh, Richard have no gene, uh, no uh, yeah. uh, sex, uh, sex work and no he, cock. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Took you a while to get and that out. Blank. Yeah. <laughs> you had to blank, make him blank. Yeah. Yeah. That was fun. I remember that. I, I watched that special. Oh, did you? Yeah. That, what else did you do on that? Uh, well, the, we supplied the aliens for the canteen oh, yeah. thing. Yeah, but yeah, that was you know that whole thing was a comedy special, and you started out on a close up saying, you know, I thought I was going to have to give up a lot to do this show. And That's right, and they pull out. pulling back, and then you see they just got he's no got dick. nothing. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Now Ed Wood, you won an Oscar for. Now I have to assume that there must have been something emotionally de- deep about having to kind of like. I, I, I'm just assuming that as a kid you loved Dracula. Oh, well, yeah. And, and, and Bailey Lugosi and sure. Boris Karloff were my idols. You know? Right. So, yeah. like, what did it feel like to be in that world? It seemed very kind of um, human. Well, I, you know, when I, I'm also an Ed Wood fan. You yeah. Know? And when I heard that this was happening, you know, I contacted Tim. I met Tim uh, w- when I did uh, Thriller. Um, there was a uh, one of the costume people, Kelly Kimball. You did the Michael Jackson video. Yes. That was all you? Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. Yep. Um, and I'm in it as well. I'm yeah. one of the zombies in it, too. Not dancing, but... Yeah. Um, a non-dancing zombie. Yeah. Yeah, get one yourself the, in there. Yeah. <laughs> My whole crew's in it. How are you feeling about the zombie apocalypse? Well, it's going to happen. Yeah. <laughs> but I mean, like, do you, are, this resurrection of zombies over the last decade, is that something, when you look at that, could could you anticipate that that would be the dominant no, monster? No, no, and and Because it's always been around. Yeah. And, you know, I, the thing is now, you know, with Walking Dead, which I, I have to admit I don't really watch. Yeah. I, um, I've tuned in a couple times to see some of the zombies, yeah. uh, but they've pretty much explored every possibility that there is. In, in, <laughs> yes. in, you know, uh, but you know, it's, I'm, I always enjoyed zombies. Yeah. You know? So, but the, but the Ed Wood thing. Yeah. I mean, so when I heard that, you know, I had met Tim previously when he was just out, just out of um, Cal Arts. Uh, him and Rick Heinrichs and this costume lady on Thriller said, "You have to meet these two kids. They're really talented." Yeah, they were doing a Frankenweenie or something at, at Disney. So I went and met him, and we talked about a number of projects, but they never happened. When I heard about Ed Wood, I go, oh, "I have to do this." So I called up Tim or wrote him or something. Yeah, I go, "I'll do this for free if I have to," which he pretty much took me up on. You know? <laughs> um, but and then when I read the script, I mean, also I'm a Martin Landau fan. You know? Yeah, oh great. And when I read the script, it, I thought the script was brilliant. Yeah, and I just said. You know, I, I really have to do this movie. And it really, to me, you know, Lugosi was so, it had to be real. And yeah. I didn't want him to be a rubber face. And I, I wanted to get the essence of Bela, but not pile a lot of rubber on him. Yeah. And I think when I, I wasn't as experienced of a makeup artist, I might have put too much on him. Yeah. That happens a lot, I think, right. you know. And it's really choosing where to put it and what to put and, and, mm-hmm. and what not to put. Sure. Know? And and I really wanted him to be real, and 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 I think it worked out quite yeah, well. Yeah, it was definitely moving in yeah. a lot of ways. Yeah, I think it's Tim's best movie, and and it's the least Tim Burton movie that he's made, but I think it's a really a great movie. I think that might be. I'd, I'd have to really weigh that. I just talked to Devito about you know I, what was that Batman Returns where he yeah, plays the, the penguin. penguin uh-huh. And I, I thought that was kind of a genius thing, mm-hmm. but it is the, the the spectacle of Tim Burton is very specific, whereas Ed Wood seemed to, he got out of the way a little bit. Yeah, and yeah. you could see more of the heart of him in a way. Yeah, yeah. So was it great working with the Landau and 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 sort of re, kind of getting to know 
bill up through that. Yeah, I mean, it was it was really cool because you know he uh, Martin Lando was also the makeup guy on on, on Mission Impossible. You know, yeah, he was the guy yeah, that oh, right. disguises <laughs> and stuff. You know, <laughs> yeah. and he's in the Outer Limits, a couple right. of Outer Limits episodes. And yeah. stuff. you know, so I was just like a geek. You know, as being a geek fanboy, uh, I try oh, I try not to be. You know, but I, you know, eventually, sometimes it happens. Oh yeah, you know, you got you got to ask those questions <laughs> yeah. eventually. You know, so. sure. And you did, and you work with Cronenberg too on that on the uh, Videodrome, which is a weird ass movie. Oh, no, really weird. That's something I started saying before. You like, I used to have to try to convince people to let me do something. Yeah. When American Werewolf came out. They thought we could do anything. Yeah. And Cronenberg's movie was one of the ones right after American Werewolf. Yeah. And it was like, how the hell are we going to do this? I mean, and that's the thing. I mean, what makes me mad about contractors who are working on your house? Yeah. You know, they can never give you an accurate bid, you know, uh-huh. and of time and money and stuff. Uh, though I actually have a contractor now who's really good, you know, but, but, um, it's like here. The I really have, good ones are always expensive. Yeah. You know, but you know, it's like, here I have to do something that nobody's done before. Yeah. In, on a schedule that they're giving me and, and, you know, f- figure out a, a budget that I have to stick to. Yeah. And I do it. You yeah. know, how come you can't put, you know, there's every <laughs> right, 16 right, inches right. Yeah, of a yeah, two yeah. by four. How come you, how come yeah. you can't figure that out? Yeah, yeah. You know, but there was some weird shit in, in video drama. And yeah. I said to David, I said, I don't know how I'm going to do some of this. I don't think some of it I can do. Like putting the tape in his stomach or whatever. Yeah. That was easier than some of the other things. <laughs> but I mean, he, I, I, but I said, you know, I, I, if I can't do it, I'll come up with a, an alternate version. Oh, the you know? screen that pushed out. Yeah. We yeah. did all that stuff. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you have to figure out machinery. Yeah. And all kinds of crazy, you know, illusions. And you got a team of guys you usually work with. And they were kids. You know, when yeah. I did American Werewolf, I mean, now there's hundreds of makeup people that are good. There weren't then that do yeah. this kind of stuff. And right. American Werewolf, I hired fans who sent me fan mail. I sent a kid out from Texas, brought him out, who sent me fan mail. <laughs> Another kid from Connecticut. Yeah. The average, I mean, the, the average age of the people that were working for me were 18 on that movie. No kidding. And they hadn't worked in a movie before. I was, but they were total nerds for it? Yeah. And yeah. I was 30, and I, I spent some time showing him how to do stuff. And we did stuff that still, I mean, however many years later this is, it was 1980 when yeah. we were doing it. Um, it still holds up pretty well. Yeah. You know? <laughs> I got to watch it again. I remember being profoundly disturbed by it. <laughs> and when you do something like The Grinch, where you got to honor the Susian vision, I mean, that must have been like challenging because like there, there's an innocence to Seuss, you know, even in his most sinister characters. And now you're going to have full detail. of the, You've got to make these things real monsters in a way. Yeah, and try to be true to it. But, and, and then, you know, they're very simple drawings, too. Yeah, you know? I know. And there's, yeah. and there's things that you can't do, you know, the long neck and uh-huh. thing. And then, I mean, I almost, and originally when I first got the call about that, envisioned where I thought the Grinch should be, but I, my first question is to go, what the hell are the who's? Yeah. I mean, when you look at those things in the book, they're like these weird, like, bug people or something, you know? Right, and, right. And then I go, how are we going to do Cindy Lou Who? Yeah. I mean, you're going to hire a kid. A kid yeah. can only work so many hours. You right. can't do a three-hour makeup. Yeah. Know? So, I mean, that part of it was a challenge to come up with the right concept. And I still think the who's are scary. I mean, it's hard to do a strange-looking human and not have it be scary. You know? Sure, yeah. But the Grinch, I mean, I had to fight to do the makeup that I did. They wanted... Their attitude was, we're paying Jim Carrey however many We want to see his face? We want to see his face. And you paint him green. And it's like, no, it's wrong. It's going to ruin the movie, you know? Yeah. How the Grinch stole Christmas, not how green Jim Carrey stole Christmas. And I did something which I I, I talked about in the book, which was a secret at the time, but- I mean, they were not going to let me do this. I did wow. a makeup. I did a makeup on myself and showed yeah. it to them. And they go, "No, it's too much." Too yeah, I, I talked to. There was a website at the time called Ain't It Cool News that was. A, they reviewed movies, but uh, and and had a, quite a following. Yeah, and I knew the guy who ran it was a fan, and I said, "Listen, 
I want to save Universal from themselves. You know, yeah. I said, I'm doing a How the Grinch Stole Christmas. I did a makeup test on myself that's what it should be. They want me to paint Jim Carrey green. Is there some way that you can tell a little fib and say that you saw that test and that Universal is making a big mistake? Yeah. Uh, he goes, I'm all over that. Yeah, sure, you know. So they did, and there were like thousands of responses. So at the very last minute, Universal changed their mind and let me do the thing. Uh, you, and, and you did the leak. And yeah, and you know, and Ron, you know, Ron and Brian, who I sent the tape to as well, I go, somehow this guy saw this tape. I mean, and, and I said, well, you and Brian are the only ones I sent it to, you know, oh, and, man. and you know, I had to keep my mouth shut at that point, you know, yeah. but now it's like, I mean, I frankly think I'd save the movie. I think if it was Jim Carrey, yeah, just with did green, it do all right, the movie? It did. Well, and yeah. it's a, you know, a holiday classic. It shows up all the time. You know, That's but, great. Yeah. Good job. <laughs> but then you do these other ones, you do the ring, you do all these, like the horror movies. And I got to assume that, you know, men in black, just that's got to be just a free for all where you just make up weirdos. You know, it was hard in that we didn't really know what Men in Black was yeah. you know, when we were making the movie. Sure. And, and they said, which they say to me all the time, we want to see aliens like we've never seen before. Sure. You know, that was a lot easier before Star Wars. And, and you know, after we did the cantina scene, every movie had a cantina scene, you know, with, yeah. with space movie with a bunch of different alien designs right. and stuff. And I, I, you know, my approach was, why don't we make aliens that look like ones we've seen, but better, and even say that it was like, someone actually saw this and and did a you know a drawing right right you know but this is what it really looks like yeah no 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 we don't like that idea <laughs> but i i happen to like retro aliens so i every time i did a man in black movie i did three of them i pitched that idea the last men in black men in black three there's a time travel thing you go back to the 60s so yeah it made sense so, right right so i finally got to make the <laughs> retro retro aliens that i like you, yeah, know, yeah. you know but i mean men in black didn't have you know it's a movie about aliens on earth there wasn't very much in the script and right but it just seems to me that like you know there was some of them where you just went to town where you just well, sort of like well, why again, not just push the limit and, well because i did because i couldn't i i, I didn't accept you know the, the uh, will's introduction to aliens on earth took place in the original script in a bar and he's with Tommy Lee Jones and Tommy yeah. says Aliens are everywhere. The bartender Chucky's an alien. And yeah. the script says Chucky lifts his neck and light comes out. And I go, I'm sorry, but this is a missed opportunity. This yeah. should be the coolest fucking thing you've ever seen. Yeah. And and we saw that in Cocoon, and it wasn't that exciting. Yeah. You know. So was uh, that the one you shot his head off? Uh, no, we did a thing. Back? No, we had his face open up and have a little green man inside. Oh yeah, we yeah, came, yeah. We came up with that idea, you yeah, know. Yeah. And they go, we love that idea. So we actually made a head for this bartender. We did the whole thing. Producers come in one day and they go. Oh, you know, we forgot to tell you, we're not going to do that anymore. And I went, I thought you loved this idea. And they go, oh, no, no, we do love it. We love it so much, we're going to put it in a different character, and we're going to give him dialogue. And then, you know, the guys, I go, dialogue? And I, you know, I go, his mouth is this big. His mouth is like an eighth of an inch, you know? Yeah. yeah. So we had to make a big version of it that, 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 that did it's the so talking. It's so funny because it's so ridiculously Rube, Rube Goldberg-y kind of thing where oh, yeah. it's just such a comedy play, yeah. you know? But, I mean, I, I mean, you know, I, I'm sure a lot of producers and directors hate me because if I don't agree with them, I fight or, or I'll suggest things, you know. And well, it's, it's just weird because, it, it, you know, but it sounds like a lot of times eventually you win because, like, you're creating something spectacular that they couldn't envision at all. So they're naturally nervous. But it seems like sometimes they're like, holy shit. And other times they're like, I don't know. But, like, you know, you're giving them something they couldn't visualize and takes it to a whole other level. And I would imagine most of the time the fight is is right 
Well, I, I think it is, yeah. you know, and, and they, they eventually come around. You know, I think a lot of it is like, okay, he's not going to shut up until we just let him do it, you know. Yeah. You know, but, um, but yeah, I think I've, because of the ideas I've come up with and, and things like that, I've made some of the movies I worked on better. And what about, uh, have we leveled off on apes? I mean. I, you know, well, I mean, it was my, I, I liked fooling people with makeup when I was a kid. Yeah. And a little kid Frankenstein didn't fool anybody. You know, right. they would go, oh, isn't that cute? Ricky looks like uh -huh. Frankenstein. It's uh -huh. like, they're supposed to run in fear. So I went through a blood and guts phase yeah. where I made, when the first time I did a wound on myself, my mom freaked out. Yeah. I made up all the kids in the neighborhood. Yeah. Wasn't allowed to play with them anymore. <laughs> you know, <laughs> yeah. did, some, did some things. Now as a parent, I would have killed this kid if they right. would have done it to me, you know. Um, <laughs> but I, I wanted to find something else that I could do. And I thought an ape is like a, a real life thing and it's kind of monstrous, you know. Mm. So I started doing research on ape suits that had been done before and real, real gorillas, and, yeah. and found out. Uh, it just became fascinated with the animal. I mean, Hollywood did them injustice. You know? Yeah, uh, uh, gorillas are very pacifistic and, and quite amazing, you know. But I thought this is something I can do. So it was a quest from the time I was a kid to make a realistic ape suit. I made a number of them. Uh, when I finally did Gorillas in the Mist, I, I, I thought, okay, I'm done. I did a, a, a gorilla that was intercut with a real animal and nobody knows. It's, the whole movie is real gorilla, fake gorilla, real gorilla, fake gorilla. I said, you can't do that. You can't compare mine to a real one. Yeah. And they did and it worked. You know? Right. So I thought, okay, I can check that off. I made the ultimate gorilla suit. Yeah. You know? <laughs> then, then I got, I, I did Mighty Joe Young because it was like the other big ape movie that yeah. I loved as a kid. And I so you did, did King it. Kong twice and Mighty Joe Young. Yeah, and Planet of the Apes. I had to do. You know, so, <laughs> yeah. You know, yeah, and you kind of updated that too. Yeah, well, I mean, I I, I wanted, and again, when, when I, I talked to Tim about it, really wanted to do the film, but I said, I don't want to do Tim Burton apes. You know, I don't want to do crazy stylized, you know, white face with dark circles around the eyes, you know, swirly things on it. I want to do realistic apes. If you don't want that, then I don't want to do it. And he goes, no, I do want real, you know, so. Yeah, yeah I think you really reimagined the whole, that, and then they stuck with that with the other newer ape movies too, right? Well, which they're all done CG, but uh. yeah, but I think they're done really well. I mean, well, that's a, that, well, that's an interesting question. Do you feel like, you know, on some level, the craft that you spent your life doing is being, you know, phased out? You know, if you would ask me that 10 years ago, I would have said yes, for sure. I mean, definitely it took away the animatronics part of our work and a lot of the effects part of it. You know? And clay. Yeah, well, yeah, we still do some clay stuff, okay, but yeah. yeah. But um, it became the, the go-to solution for everything, sure. you know, when I think there's a lot of things we could do better in, in real world. 10 years ago. Yeah. Right. Um, but, and, and it did look like it was dying out. Right. But now I think there's more makeup, there's more makeups being done than ever. And I think some of the best makeups that have ever been done are being done now. So there's, there's so many, there's so many markets now, you know, and a lot of it's being done for TV you know, uh -huh. or for uh, streaming and stuff. Uh -huh. So, I mean, it, the number of makeups are, are just uh, mind boggling now. I mean, I never would imagine that this many makeups would be going on. And this many good mangoes would be going on. So you're saying that the the CGI thing is still limited to big budget, uh, you know, specific type of movie making. Well, I, I mean, people also have just decided, okay, this should be a makeup too. I mean, I don't know what the decision making is. Oh, okay, is, I see. You know? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think one of the reasons, because for me, what really changed when I did American Werewolf, yeah. everybody said, "What is the new material that allowed you to do things that had never been done before?" And I said, "I was given adequate time and money. Yeah. I've never gotten it before." When John asked me when I was 20 about yeah. what it would take, I was going to say, I said, it's going to take a lot more time and a lot more money than what I'm getting on Schlock. You know? Right. <laughs> you know, <laughs> yeah. uh, and, uh, you know, it changed. I, uh, when I did Gremlins too, I mean, mind you, we made hundreds of Gremlins and Mogwais and stuff, yeah. but I had a year 
on that film. I was on that film for a year. I love Gremlins. And, 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 you know, as opposed to two weeks on, yeah. you know, on, on something else. So you can definitely do better work in a year. Did you have a lot of Gremlins at your house? I have a couple, yeah. yeah. But my whole point of this was, you <laughs> yeah. know, the for me, I needed the answer when a director isn't really ready to give an answer. If I'm starting a year before the movie's being made, the yeah. director's usually on another movie. Right. And I go, I need to know what this is going to, you know, what side you're going to see, you know, this. Uh -huh. And they don't want to make the decision. They eventually give you some answer. When it comes to the day, it's like, oh, you know, I've changed my mind. I really want something else, you know. Uh -huh. It's like, uh, but, and it happens all the time, you know. But it's, And after you put a year into it, that's a little shitty. Oh, well, you know, I mean, I, I, I think I've made more things that aren't on film than I have. Is that, that true? Well, no. Uh, <laughs> but there's a lot. For yeah. example, Men in Black, one of the big challenges on that, there, there was the Vincent D'Onofrio makeup, you know, which, the which is the human skin yeah. with the inside sucked out that that's bugs wearing. Yeah, know? right, right. And I had a real problem with the logic. You know, this bug's supposed to be 12 foot tall. Yeah. You know, and I, with this again, like Barry Sonnenfeld, would call, I'd call up Barry, the director, and go, yeah. how's a 12 foot bug fit in a six foot man? You know, and you right. go, well, he folds up. And I go, well, <laughs> yeah, that, that doesn't work because his, his forearm <laughs> is not going to, it's still yeah. going to be four feet long. Right. You know? It doesn't matter, you know, and I kept calling, I tried to come up with logic for things, you yeah. know, and the reality was, it didn't matter, but it was a design nightmare in that we had Steven Spielberg, who wanted to be involved, we had Barry Sonnenfeld, yeah. we had Walter Parks, they all wanted to look at designs, so we'd do designs, I'd send off copies to them all in different places, uh -huh. they go, you know, I like the head on A4, and I like this body on C6, oh and the feet on 3, you know, it's, it's, you know, whatever, why don't you do one like that? And I would say, because it would look stupid, that's yeah. why, and they, then they go, okay, let me rephrase that, do one that looks like that, yeah. you know? <laughs> right. But the bug, the, the big Edgar bug, which was one of the biggest things we made, the design they chose, I said, doesn't look bug-like enough. It doesn't look to me like a bug. Yeah. It looks more like a reptile. Uh -huh. And Steven said, who says space bugs would so look like earth bugs? <laughs> and go. I said, earth people who are the, one, the ones that are going to be seeing this movie. It <laughs> says bug, 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 bug. Right. You know, I said, let me put an exoskeleton on it at least, you know. And anyways, cut to, you know, we're on the set at MGM yeah. with our giant mechanical bug, all set up with all these puppeteers ready to go. And the director comes up to him and goes, you know, we decided this doesn't look enough like a bug. So we're just going to do it all CG later. Oh, yeah. my God. And this was where we put most of our effort in work, you know. I've done movies. I did a movie called Isobar that we worked on for 10 months that was canceled. Uh, and what do you do with the monsters? Well, that got put in storage somewhere. I have oh. no idea where they are now, you know. Uh. But, but a lot of times you'll do things, you know, something that you think is the main thing ends up being an incidental thing and something that's like a incidental thing becomes the main thing. You know? And you have pictures at least. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, my question too, in closing here in, is, is like, you know, I'm sort of have a fascination with the uh, Todd Browning's freaks mm -hmm. and you have that bust of Zippy in the book, uh, uh, like, which is Sch like Schlitzy actually. Schli was, oh yeah. Schlitzy. Yeah. Uh, uh, and it's a uh, silicon. Uh -huh. It looks so, like real. Yeah. Look, what, what compelled you to, I, I love Schlitzy. You know, I love freaks too. Yeah. Uh, you know, uh, Gooba Gobble. You know? Yeah, yeah. Uh, I always felt like one of them, you yeah, know? Yeah, yeah. Um, and I loved Schlitzy. I mean, you know, I do love grotesque things. You know, I don't like gore. You yeah. know, I mean, people always, I'm squeamish. I pass out when I see blood. And really? Stuff. Yeah. Even uh, fake blood? No. Fake, no. If I do it, it's okay. I mean, but if it's well done <laughs> yeah, in a movie, yeah. it, it affects me. But so. that's interesting what you just said, though, that there's something about being a shy maybe, you know, only child, the awkwardness that is uh, inherent in that. Because I've thought about this myself. What what makes me gravitate towards, 
you know, and, and find sort of empathy and, and be moved by human anomalies is that they, they function in the world proudly as, as people who are completely unusual. Mm-hmm. And there's something inspiring about that. Mm-hmm. Well, again, I mean, I, you know, I say I love monster movies and stuff, but it's like Frankenstein, you know, Hunchback and Notre yeah. Dame, the Charles Lawton Quasimodo. Oh my God, it makes me cry when I watch it. You know, sure, I, yeah. Brilliant performance and brilliant makeup. And But, you know, as a kid, and especially an odd kid, you know, yeah. you know, you, you relate to them, you sure. know, because you're like them, you know, yeah. and I think that's part of what attracted you me. You feel to so it. different and yeah. weird. But, you know, it's funny. I mean, now, uh, you know, and my wife, Sylvia, is, is responsible a lot for me being, uh, I had no social skills. Uh-huh. <laughs> you know? Yeah. And I didn't like going anywhere. Yeah. I still don't like going anywhere, yeah. you know. But she's brought a lot of things out in me that that didn't exist before, you know. So, That's nice. Yeah, yeah. So you don't feel like a monster anymore. <laughs> no, <laughs> not so much. <laughs> you know? It's great talking to you, Rick. It's nice talking to you, Mark. Thanks for having me. All right. Well, that was cool. I th- I thought that was very interesting. Uh, the book uh, Rick Baker Metamorphosis is available wherever you get books. Tomorrow, October twenty second, you can pre order it now if you want. It's two volumes, seven hundred and thirty six pages long. It has more than sixteen hundred images from Rick's career. And don't forget about the Adult Swim podcast. If you like Rick and Morty, Robot Chicken, Aqua Teen, Hunger Force, Too Many Cooks, Tim and Eric, or any of the Adult Swim shows, then the Adult Swim podcast is for you. Go behind the scenes with the creators, cast, and crew of the Adult Swim shows you love. Listen and subscribe to the Adult Swim podcast for free wherever you get your podcasts. This is this. I'm going to play uh, a guitar that right now that did not cost forty thousand dollars, and it sounds pretty fucking good. <laughs>